Hey, what's up, Facebook group? This is Jason here. So originally I was going to write an article today, but I decided to do this video instead. It's it's quicker to do, easier to do. And no, I did not say quick video, Cohen. <laughs> Last time I said that, I went 18 minutes and Cohen gave me a friendly little jab. That's all right. Now, I don't know how long this one's going to be, but I'll try to keep it sweet and short. So Something that's been on my mind a lot lately, especially now that I've created this group and a lot of people are contacting me more frequently, um, as someone who's been involved in the movement for seven years and been out of it 10, naturally people are going to come to me and ask for help. Uh, they want tips. They want um, some insight. Um, a lot of times people will come to me who have a friend or a loved one who is either going down that route or is already in there and they just want some insight as uh, some things that they could share with their loved one to try to get them out of this heresy. And of course, I completely understand that. But I think what takes some people by surprise is I don't really spend much time on the text that you would think I would spend time on, namely Matthew 24 or Revelation or time text. And there's a reason for that, and it's not because I don't have an opinion about those things. It's not because I'm scared of hyperpreterists and their interpretation of these time tags, and I don't know what to do with it. It's not that at all. The problem is, and this is something a lot of people just don't grasp and understand, is that the problem with hyperpreterism is not time text or necessarily their view of Matthew 24, even though there, I think there are some problems there. But that's not the root of it. People have to understand is that hyper-preterists have core fundamental problems in their theology before they ever get to eschatology. Think of it as, I always give this illustration, I've done it at church a couple of times, where, you know, you... Imagine two people, you know, they're walking side by side. They're going down the same path. So you have the hyperpreterist and the Christian. A lot of people think that hyperpreterism and Christian hold hands as they're walking along the path. And then when they get 50 miles down the road and they start encountering time text, that that's when they start to depart and go their separate ways. But the reality is, is that they depart down here at mile marker one. In fact, in some cases, I would say even before, as soon as they take two steps, they go in opposite directions. People, we got to understand is that the whole reason why a person can entertain hyperpreterism and entertain, say, Don Preston's arguments about Luke 21 and Matthew 24 to begin with is because they, they don't have that solid foundation and the solid understanding of core fundamental doctrines uh, prior to that. They don't have it. It doesn't exist. It's not coincidental that hyperpreterism largely came out of the Church of Christ movement, which is a heretical movement. People had no understanding at all about core fundamental doctrines like the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation. And so this is why I believe that 
arguing with hyperpreterists over time text is a complete waste of time because you're not really addressing the core problem. Well, to give you an example of this, and this is what prompted me to finally uh, do this video, as some of you know, Sam Frost recently debated Don Preston. Sam was somebody who was in the movement for a long time, one of my best friends. We actually were in it together, doing stuff together. And then I came out, and he came out shortly after, around 2010. And then, of course, Don Preston's been in the movement for a long time. He's one of their, probably their most pro prolific uh, writers in that regard, uh, very active in the movement. But so they did a debate, radio debate at Iron Sharpens Iron by Chris Arnzen. I encourage you to check it out. They they, uh, they had two days where they debated certain texts and stuff, but it's in that third session where they had the whole session was just the Q and A because they they couldn't really give as much time to that as they wanted to in the first two sessions. So they had a, a bunch of questions sent in from people. And, you know, the questions, a lot of them weren't that great. They were kind of softballs thrown to Don. I wish there had been some better ones. But at any rate, at one point in the Q&A, they finally got to talking about basically the doctrine of salvation. And what got it started was somebody had asked, well, if Jesus died for the world, wouldn't that include creation? And doesn't salvation have implications for the material creation, physical creation. And it, it was kind of a weird question the way it was asked. Um, I think it could have been worded better. But that's what finally got the conversation going down that path. But I want you to hear something that Don Preston says here to Sam that makes my point perfectly. That point being is that there are deeper problems with hyperpreterism than just the time text. The time text and all those are just symptoms, okay? There's a more core fundamental problem with this system. And until you address that, you're not really going to help anybody who's dabbling in it or who's in it. So let me play this clip for you and I want you to hear this. Uh let's see. Here we go. Okay, it's a great question. Uh, Sam wants to convince us that sin brought physical corruption. Okay, if that is the case, then why does not forgiveness of our sin bring instantaneous incorruption? So, did you hear that? Don Preston is asking the question, and it's, it's actually a rhetorical question. He's, he's actually making a statement. And the statement is, if sin brings about physical corruption to us, which is what Christianity has taught since day one, how, how then is it that when Christ brings forgiveness of sins to us, that we are not then instantaneously made incorrupt? Do you see the problem here? I think it's very interesting that he throws in the word instantaneous. I think that was the word he used, right? Immediately instantaneous. 
You notice what Don didn't say. He didn't ask, well, if forgiveness of sins uh, involves our physical makeup and in, 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 uh, physical decay, why does it not bring physical deliverance? Because if he had said that, he would have he would have known the answer, and the answer would have been exactly what we see, for example, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number eighty-five. It says, "Death being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death, seeing all their sins are forgiven in Christ?" So this is kind of similar to the the question that that Don is asking here, but notice their answer. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day. And even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. Notice the answer. The answer is, we will be delivered from death. You see, if Don had asked the question, well, if forgiveness of sins brings physical deliverance, why are we not physically delivered? The answer would have been, well, duh, we are going to be physically delivered. It's going to come. But notice he puts in the word instantaneous. Why does Don say that? Because Don does not understand salvation. He doesn't understand how it works. Because according to him, at the moment that Christ justifies a person, you should instantaneously receive all the benefits of salvation right then and there. And that is not the biblical doctrine of salvation. It never has been. Rather, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches is that when we talk about salvation, we're talking about a very broad term that includes multiple saving graces or multiple benefits. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gets into some of these benefits. Starting in uh, question uh, 30, 30 uh, what doth the Spirit apply to us? Or, no, excuse me. How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applied to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. The next question, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Question 32, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life. Here, listen to this. They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from them. Now notice here, they're quoting, uh, or they quote Romans 8.30. What does it say in Romans 8.30? And actually, we can go back one verse, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, that is, for love, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, 
them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Notice that for Paul, salvation is not just one thing called justification. It is actually a, uh, it's, it's actually a group of things. In fact, if you, uh, if you have a good study Bible, like the Reformation Heritage Study Bible that I have here, notice the comment here in verse 30. This is so simple. This is known as the golden chain. This verse presents the unfailing sequence of God's saving acts, bound together such that the same group of people experiences every step. So understand, salvation is not just one act, one benefit called justification. It is actually a series of acts. It is actually a group of benefits. Again, going back to the catechism, effectual calling, justification, adoption, uh, sanctification. And then when you go on, it asks, you know, what is justification? What is adoption? What is sanctification? Verse 35. Then it asks, um, in verse 30, or question 37, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united with Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Understand something. Salvation is a very broad umbrella term that includes multiple saving acts, multiple benefits, multiple steps. And nowhere does the Bible teach that when God initiates that, that those steps, that you just get everything all at once, all the benefits. Don Preston doesn't even believe that. Because if he did, he would believe that the moment God forgives him of his, of his sin, he would be made perfect in the sense that he would no longer sin. And yet Don Preston still sin, still sins. If you don't believe me, read his articles. <laughs> He's constantly slandering and lying about people. So he clearly sins. But, but even Don Preston doesn't believe that when God takes that person, that initial step, and, and re, uh, converts them or regenerates If he even believes that, I don't know. But the words he used when God forgives a person of sin. Even when God does that according to his own scheme, God does not give to that person at that moment all the benefits instantaneously. If he does believe that, then the question for him is, well, what happens when you die? Are you still going to sin in heaven? Is there going to be any changes that are, that are done to you? And, of course, if he was consistent, he would have to say, well, no. And some hyperpreters do say that. Dave Curtis entertained the idea in a sermon that when, when he dies and goes to heaven, there's not going to be any changes made because he's already got it all. And so he then goes on to realize the implication of that is that he may still sin in heaven. It very, very much may be a possibility. But you see the problem here, folks. These guys that don't want to go that route, like Don, and say, no, 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 we don't. Even they understand that salvation is a process. It is a process. You don't get all the benefits at once, instantaneously. 
Because if you did, Don Preston would not be sinning today, and yet he still does. Even in his view, something is going to happen at death where another step is involved that brings perfection of his soul so that he's not in heaven sinning. But yet when he comes to Sam and this whole question of the physical implications of salvation, all of a sudden he just throws all that out the window and says, well, if there's going to be physical uh, ramifications, then it has to be instantaneous. No, it doesn't. So you see the problem here. Don Preston does not even understand the doctrine of salvation. Or maybe he does to some extent because of the fact that he still has a process going on, but he doesn't want to let people in on that when he's coming after Christians. I want to read something to you. Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology. There's multiple places where he addresses this, but he, he's got a section called The Tenses of Salvation. And this is where I want to read this part to you because this is where he shows in Scripture that salvation is a process. Okay, Not that justification is a process, but salvation. Don't confuse the two. Justification is an aspect of salvation. But salvation involves other things other than just justification. So Robert Raymond writes, The scriptures speak of salvation in all three time tenses. One, the past tense. The Christian has been saved from the guilt and penalty of sin. He quotes Luke 19.9. Today salvation has come to this house. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us in Titus 3.5. According to his mercy, he saved us, past tense. But then Robert goes on and says, then you have the present tense of salvation. The Christian is being saved from the power of sin. 1 Corinthians 1.18, to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 15.2, by which you are being saved. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, because we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So there's the present tense of salvation. But then you have the future tense of salvation. Raymond writes, the Christian will be completely saved someday from the very presence of sin. Romans 5, 9, and 10, we shall be saved through him from the wrath. Uh, Romans 13, 11, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 15, he shall be saved, but as through fire. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, having put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. And 1 Peter 1, 5, kept by the power of God through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Raymond writes, for several chapters now, we have considered the past and present tenses of salvation. And then he goes on to talk about the final phase of the order salutis, the order of salvation, glorification. But you see the point here. When we talk about salvation in the Bible, we're not talking about just one aspect, justification. We're talking about an entire process, an entire uh, group of steps with what the theologians call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. You read any good reformed systematic theology, they're going to talk about this. This is standard stuff. 
But you see the point. When God justifies a person, which is a one-time act in time and space, it's a legal declaration that that person has been declared righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ, God does not at that point glorify you. He doesn't at that point give you everything and apply everything to you regarding your salvation. Now, there's a sense in which you can say you possess it because it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee that those whom God has justified, he will sanctify and he will glorify. But he doesn't apply the benefits. He doesn't apply glorification to you at the moment that you're justified. That's never taught in the Bible. And yet Don acts like it is. Because that's the thinking that he has that undergirds his whole point. When he says, well, if salvation is going to deliver us from physical death, why aren't we instantaneously delivered from physical death? So see, he thinks he, he has you. He thinks he's got you. But beloved, he doesn't, he doesn't even understand salvation. He has no, he's, he's clueless. He doesn't understand it. Because the Bible never teaches that God is going to apply the whole of our salvation in all of its aspects. That he's going to do all of that at once when he justifies us. That's not, that's not what the Bible teaches. And it's that simple. Which is why he had, and I think <clears throat> this is why he's got to throw in that word instantaneous. Because if he had left that word out, then what would have been our answer? The answer would have been the same thing I just read here in the uh, larger catechism. The righteous shall be delivered from death. We will be delivered from death. You can't sit here and argue with us and say, well, you know, if, if, uh, if the curse or the sin does not involve physical death, then why aren't you delivered? Well, we are going to be delivered. Hello? That's what we believe. But see, you think because God doesn't do it now, that somehow that proves that sin doesn't involve physical death. But it doesn't prove that because you don't understand the doctrine of salvation and you don't understand that it is a process. So, folks, again, I want you to understand, to go back to my initial point, the whole reason I'm doing this video is when you're debating hyper-predators, understand you're debating people who more than likely are unregenerate, who don't even have a basic understanding of the doctrine of salvation. And it's because they don't have that foundation, that's why they are able to entertain theories like hyperpreterism. When I, when I was entertaining the, the theory of hyperpreterism, I should have had some red flags go off in my mind that said, no, you can't go that route, because once you do, you've got to redefine this stuff back here. But it never kicked in. Why? Because I didn't have a good solid understanding of things like the order of salutis, the doctrine of salvation. I thought I did, but apparently didn't. Otherwise, I would immediately, it would immediately, you know, popped up in my head like, nope, I can't go that route. Because the Bible teaches salvation is a process. So anyway, so... <clears throat> How, how long have I gone here? 23 minutes. All right, that's not bad. <laughs> but anyway, so understand that, folks, that as, as you heard it straight from his, from his lips, Don Preston, he does not understand even the doctrine of salvation. And if you don't understand that, how in the world are you going to understand eschatology?
because it's all related. And this is why I will continue to argue that it is a complete waste of time to even argue eschatology with hyperpreters and to argue time text. Because as you can see, you're not really getting to the root of the problem. Well, I hope that helps. And um, by the way, um, instead of buying that commentary on Revelation or some book on Matthew, if you want some good uh, source, if you want some good material to help you with hyperpreters and to help your buddy out, buy Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology. Buy John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And start from page one. Don't jump to the eschatology section. Start from page one. I guarantee you, you go through that and you go through it carefully and you pay attention. You, you'll know before you even get anywhere near eschatology, the eschatology stuff, the chapter, that hyperpreterism can't be right. It's impossible. All right? So thanks for listening.